Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Firm Returns Weekly. Uh, this week, we have a few points to discuss on Tiny Build, Ecore Resources, Aviva, and One Brothers Discovery. Um, and I'm using a new microphone arm, so hopefully the sound will be a bit better. <laughs> I noticed last week that uh, it's, it had been picking up the banging sound of my neighbor. Um, doing some work in their garden. So I think uh, hopefully with me being close to the mic, it'll now just focus on me rather than any background noise, but it's pretty quiet out there today anyway. Anyway, let's get started. So I'll just share my screen. Okay. So yeah, we're expecting uh, Tiny Build's interim results at some point soon. Um, so yeah, we'll have plenty to discuss then, I think, as we should be a good marker in how they're doing, uh, well, how bad things are, how bad the hit has been in terms of revenue, adjusted EBITDA and so on, um, and, and net profit relative to what they were guiding, um, at the AGM, hopefully, well, but things might have been a little bit better than feared but we'll find out i don't want to be speculating too much i know <clears throat> part, of, part of the the issue is i think that we have had a couple of very successful releases but i think they would probably come into the second half of the year so um the they won't really be any making any impact on the interim results for the first half so um yeah, there, there is that to consider. But so yeah, we could potentially have a better second half. I think a lot of it will come down to whether in the first half they've still had some they took the really big hit to platform revenues that they were they were saying they were going to. As I mentioned in a prior week, um Pigeon Simulator is an example of a game that seems to still be going onto Xbox Game Pass. So it could be Perhaps it's not as bad as feared, or maybe that was a pre-existing deal or whatever. Anyway, we'll find out. We'll get some more color on that in the in the coming weeks. And hopefully we'll, there'll be a um a web cast on um investor meet company, as there has been in the past. But we'll get an opportunity to hear from management directly and um and pitch questions and so on if we have any. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, I just wanted to share a couple of articles that I've been, I was reading this week related to games industry, um, and uh, yeah, and I think they'd be potentially quite useful to anybody that wants to try and go through the the act of calculating a game's potential success or um, or if it's already been released, how, how successful it has been, potential sales figures and so on. From again, anybody that's wanting to do that kind of calculation, um, this is potentially some some good, there's some good information in these articles about how to sort of convert from some of the pub publicly available data, like follower numbers and things like that, that you can get access to from SteamDB um, and reviews and what have you how you can get from those to uh, 
non-public figures like wish lists and then how wish lists convert uh yeah the wish list is something that developers can see obviously uh, that the publishers can see but um then how those wish lists convert on average to actual sales and i thought it'd be interesting i've actually got a couple of um so i'll just show you the first of these articles this was largely talking about um follower or the wish list to follower ratio so how much of um how many times the follower count is the wish list and it's it's normally quite quite a bit more so you can see the average here i think i can't remember they, they give the exact figure but um i think they do at some point right the average is around about is 9.64 or median of 9.6 so um the first average being the mean i guess so yeah it's around about 10 times so then i just thought it'd be interesting with that figure in mind looking at this um wish this to follow a ratio here where in this curve tiny build sits and obviously it's better if they can sit more towards this end um but yeah so let's just have a quick look i was going to have a look at punch club so we've got a couple i wanted to have a look at punch club two and iron future because those are the two games where we actually know what their wish list counts were at launch so if we look back here at the follower graph we can see that at release um they were it's around about six just over six thousand six thousand three hundred and twenty nine i think it says <coughs> and we know that it was i think just shy of a hundred thousand so that's going to be not far off a 20x so way towards the the far left end of that graph let's just have a look at that my uh old-fashioned casio calculator um i think this is probably still the one i had from back in high school so still going with the original battery after i don't know 15 years or something um so let's just go Yeah, it's around about 15, 16 times. So that's going to be yeah, right up here on the t right at the left end of the graph here. I don't know what percentile that's going to be, but it looks like I would say that's certainly the top 20%, maybe even the top 10%, uh, which is yeah, really positive. And then if we have a look at Iron Future, which had a few, quite a few more followers at launch. Um, eighth of August, give me eighth, yeah. So this had 12, uh, 987, but we know that it was 16, it was 160,000 wish lists at launch. Um, so as the company has disclosed, so this one is 12.32. So you can see, yeah, both games have been quite healthily above the average. And I mean, this was potentially in the top 25% or something, just from a rough guess here, if this is around about the average, yeah, maybe top 25%. And then, um, yeah. And then the other one, punch. well, I don't know, this isn't actually like a, a frequency graph or anything. So, um, uh, well, 
yeah, this isn't really a frequency graph, though I suppose each one of these probably represents a game that they checked. Um, so you probably can roughly bunch them together. Um, but yeah, anyway, in both cases, significantly above average, which is just what I thought was quite interesting. And then the uh, just a little thing to mention on the um, the wishes stuff. Now, this is a much bigger article. It goes into loads of information. There's bits from various different developers, like 11 or publishers, 11-bit studios, talking about various things, um, timing of release. So it was it was quite interesting. Uh, how the was it? This one's entitled, yeah, Steam, a game developer's guide to Steam wish lists. So they speak to quite a few different developers, and they also speak to Valve, which is the company that owns Steam. So, um, yeah, and and it's talking about just the advantages of having. If you've got more wish lists, they they show your game in better places, all sorts of good things like that you get onto different lists it gets recommended to people more so yeah steam does definitely use wish lists as a a good um uh yeah a metric for actually promoting games and so on so it's definitely a good objective for publishers to try and, and developers to try and get their game higher up the wish list rankings and to just give it yeah, get more wish lists um yeah, and it was some there's some interesting things like um here's one. Yeah, Rockfish Games Everspace 2, and you can just see some example data, which I think we in fact we've had similar data like this. Um we got given similar data like this for Punch Club 2 uh from Alex in his article. But you can just see the daily wish list ads here in this kind of turquoise colour. Um. Yeah, and timing with different ends. and they were. I think they were saying some good stuff about um. Pretty much any kind of notification would give them a a bump, even if it was that the game is going to be delayed a bit. That was quite quite interesting to hear. Uh, so yeah, just having a steady um pipeline of of announcements is a is a good steady cadence. Of announcements is definitely desirable. Yeah. Oh, this and it was interesting just to get some insights to some particular games as well, like um, like um, some really quite successful games like Frostpunk from Eleven Bit Studios. It was good to get a few insights from that. Um, yeah, and then um, yeah, they gave this this graph was from Valve, um. I was talking about the average conversion of wish list wish list ads within a year. So um if you have a hundred thousand added within a year, or added then within a year of them being added, nineteen thousand will have been converted on average. And it's quite interesting because I think I think this varies quite a bit between games. And they were talking about this quite a bit in um uh, in some of the use, the this particular case studies with certain developers and publishers talking, there was some of them were saying it's the case is in, in their first week they'll convert as much as half of their wish list, or that was talking about thirds. And so I think this is probably just this twelve months figure from Valve is more 
just over the lifespan of a game, um, which that sort of averages out. But there's probably a bit more of a spike in the early sales. So you can probably do, you can look, at, um, you could use things like um, the data we know about um, IM Future and things like that. Uh, I think that's probably the cleaner one because it was early, but there's lots of different factors because that was early access. And I think it clouded because of the, if a publisher will um, does give you some information about a game, they're probably going to give you all the different like, sales data. They normally will, in, that will be including all the console releases and so on as well, which means that you're not really got perfectly clean data for the Steam stuff. So I don't know, you might be able to find some ex- exact conversion rate examples but but yeah just to know 19 percent is a pretty good set that's kind of like you roughly could say if you've got now this many sitting on your wish list 19 percent of those are going to get converted within the next 12 months um but yeah and I, and I think tiny but has done better than that um with the with the two case studies that we've we've had like the um uh Punch Club 2 and Iron Future. We have the data for. So yeah, moving on. Um, so Ecore Resources released their interim results this week. And on the whole, they're in line with their previous guidance. And I've uh, got some a few highlights I've taken out here. Um so the total total portfolio contribution was down to 44.5 million dollars from $92.8 million the prior year. And bearing in mind the prior year had some pretty exceptional um, prices and volumes. It was like their peak year in terms of volumes from from Kestrel, which is their uh, metallurgical coal mining royalty, and all the royalty um, changes allowing them to cap they had captured a much higher percentage of the overall revenue than they would have done previously before there were some regulatory changes in the royalty uh regimes in in australia um shores obviously was done to for the government to capture in more tax or to get royalty payments from the royalties that the government owned but it also benefited private holders of um, substratum land royalties as their core resources had. Um, but yeah, so that was a lot of it. But there, there also was this, the, the more worrying one, I would say, um, was there. Yeah, so that Kestrel stuff was largely expected, and I think they're not going to really expect much at all from in H2 and then back coming back again in H1, just because it has the mining operations move in and out of their royalty area. Um, so that's kind of like just proceeding as expected. And it actually, the um, revaluation of Kestrel downwards as rates have come down and and volumes have come down and everything um, has actually caused a net, loss for the first half as well um because i guess the portfolio contribution was le- um, less than was being modeled in the when they previously calculated the fair value for it 
or what would be depreciated off the depreciation effectively or revaluation down um has um exceeded the portfolio contributions point uh, but yeah the more worrying one is probably Voises Bay um which is the cobalt mine in um Canada operated by Vale resources I think the full names um yeah they saw a very dramatic fall um not only did volumes decrease by half they also had a, the cobalt average cobalt prices fell from 37.61 dollars per pound in the first half of 2022 down to just 16.54 dollars per pound in the first half of 2023 so yeah it's a more than 50 percent fall in the price and then a 50 percent fall in the volume so you ended up with you know around about a less than a, a quarter of of the portfolio contribution compared to the the prior year so um now they're the the reduction in volume is because they're transitioning from open pit to underground mining and the i guess they were supposed to kind of match up so as the pit was getting the open pit mining was getting depleted the underground mining would ramp up and they just balance each other out and then one would replace the other but it seems like there's been a, it's taken a bit longer than expected to get the underground mining to full production and so it's not quite offsetting the reduction in the open pit mining um and this this is why the volumes have decreased um and they're expecting them to come back up next year but you know with cobalt prices now being lower as well the best you could expect from that even if they double production again would be sort of six million for half a year and i guess um 12 million or something for the full year and my slight concern here is that um, most, I think the overall portfolio contribution from this half, from everything excluding um, Kestrel, which is obviously a, a runoff asset at the moment, was only something like 11 or 12 million. So let's say you add another another three to that or something let's let's say it's sort of 14 15 there were a few other things that got running below a bit as well the prior things let's say you end up with something like 14 15 to 30 million a year but again depend quite a big chunk of that is coming from um what well, close to half of that is going to be coming from Boise bay potentially uh, we've got like a couple of years wait before we're probably looking at sort of end of 2025 beginning of 2026 before some of the larger assets in the um portfolio the copper new copper and nickel projects and so on um west musgrave santo domingo and so on start coming into production so start producing so while we're waiting for those the revenues from those to come in are we going to be able to if Voices Bay doesn't deliver enough, are we going to be able to cover things like the revolving credit facility, which um, 
they've been ramping up quite a bit to to acquire new royalties, which has been really good to get these gross pipeline. But there's, I just concern there might be a little some difficulty in the in the short term, just in the next couple of years, um, with financing there. Because if if suddenly they you see a pretty big drop, um, say Voice of Bay, they have some problems with getting their underground mining up and running next year and ends up coming in 2025 what does that do for the um covenants the debt covenants on their revolving credit facility what does it do uh does that mean they're in breach of the covenants are they not they're going to be able to roll over these are kind of questions i i do have at this point um and i'm gonna probably i will ask i have already asked that question for their um their upcoming um investor call next week um which is again on investormeetcompany.com or the old maybe uh but anyway yeah i've preloaded a question on there about around about that so we'll find out if we get an answer for that otherwise i might um i might bring it up uh with management more directly um yeah I will be interested to see what they think. I, I've, I've very, you know, I'm very positive on the company in the medium to long term. I think mean, they've got a really good pipeline things going up, but I'm just slightly concerned about the the next couple of years whether there is going to be any kind of cash shortfall. They've still got a couple of pretty big payments they've got to make on uh, deferred consideration for the West Musgrave. Um, acquisition which is you know quite a bit i think it's like 20 million dollars expected in the second half of this year when we're not getting any money coming in from kestrel um probably not much from voices bay either um and i think they're only expecting five deliveries or something of cobalt um in the second half which is quite a bit lower than than last year um so yeah there is that slight concern there that and if they're because then they're going to they're going to have to definitely draw down on their facility to cover the cash requirements for the next for the second half of the year and there's maybe some uncertainty as to whether um then cash coming in dead. and they're just thinking that you know because they've well some positives are that one of the main th- one of the major um well, that they obviously did a quite a good acquisition recently with the um, twenty million dollars for the is is Casitas, I think they pronounce it in um, mining project in Chile, which is going to be a really massive one, and it's I think twenty twenty seven start for that one or something. Um, so that was a really seemed to be a really great deal. Copper mine, twenty million. If things get delayed a little bit, then their state there. And it looks like it's going to be one of the biggest copper projects in the world, basically. And they're getting a 0.25% royalty, which could go up above half percent if there's any kind of delays or they receive quite substantial payments in cash that would probably end up being close to what they originally invested anyway. So it seems to be a really good deal they've done there. Um, good operation and everything. But the other 
big one that we know about that they have as a, an option is um, POE from Brazilian Nickel. And they already have a stake in that, but there's the potential for them to um, add an extra $70 million. But the good point here is that if they were to do that, that only is going to happen when they actually start production. So at that point, it would be a producing mine, so you wouldn't have to worry. Um, it, it would then be giving you return cash returns straight away, which would cover any interest on on the debt that they had to take to to actually pay for it in the first place so that one should be all right but yeah if they start doing other longer term like mid-term acquisitions at this point with their current uh, with their existing credit facilities before yeah with the sort of the uncertainty for the next couple of years i'm starting to question the whether that's a good move at this point but beyond the poe which seems like a good one um so yeah we'll see how, we'll see how it goes but i definitely want to have them talk a bit about that because i, I am slightly concerned about this sh- the next year or two but anyway um yeah just a couple of things like the free adjusted earnings for the first half of 2023 was $23.4 million and the free cash flow was $17.5 million. Um, yeah, so I think that wraps up core resources. Let's move on to Aviva. So, um, yeah, some pretty big news for Aviva. They announced the appointment of Jason Storer as CEO of UK and Ireland General Insurance, replacing Adam Winslow who is leaving for an external opportunity. I understand, or I heard in some article, I think he might be going to direct line, a car insurer. Um, I don't know on that front um, exactly, but on Jason that we do know about, um, so Jason is currently the CEO of Aviva Canada, and this has been a real shining star of um of Aviva's general insurance business, and it's grown to be in the four years that he's been running it. It's grown to be the number two general insurer in Canada, and it has the the lowest combined operating ratio across the group, sort of like ninety two percent, I think, um, significantly below the the levels of the the uk so yeah hopefully you can bring some of that sort of cost efficiency across um to the uk and um yeah he's going to be replaced in his uh, ceo role in canada uh, by tracy garrad who was previously ceo of axa's uk healthcare business so um yeah, I'll see how she gets on. But yeah, quite quite good to see um, Jason coming over to the UK, actually, being the the larger business. So if he can improve the profitability of that business, still profitable, but profitability, that, that would be um, that would be great to see. So I'm pretty happy with that overall. Um, and then 
Yeah, finally, I wanted to mention about Warner Brothers Discovery. So they've put out an up, uh, some updated guidance for adjusted EBITDA and free cash flow in line with the new assumption that the WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes will continue through the end of 2023. So that's the Writers Guild and the Actors Guild, basically. Um, so yeah, they'd previously said they were going to end in September, but obviously we're into September now, and they're now going, okay, let's just model for them not ending by the end of the year. Um, and then see what that does to things. So things could change if they do end sooner. But on the uh, basis that they do persist through the end of 2023, um, they're now expecting adjusted EBITDA to be in the range of 10.5 to $11 billion, which is around about 300 to $500 million less than they were previously guiding for. So 11, 11, 11 to 11.5, I think, was what they were previously guiding for. But we're seeing the opposite effect with free cash flow, where because of the reduced um, cash expenses now, uh, we're seeing an increased um, 1.7, yeah, we the increased guidance for Q3 of 1.7 billion um, dollar, uh, yeah, 1.7 billion dollars, and for the full year. Uh, I think it was something like significantly above five billion. So yeah, really quite positive, and obviously a higher percentage of the EBITDA there. So um, than they were previously expecting. It's going to be probably closer to fifty percent rather than forty percent or something. Um, and I I think the way the reason they move in different directions is the free cash flow is. With cash flows, obviously, it's um, they're not incurring the expenses, the cash expenses, outgoings now for all the salaries and what have you, and for the different people working on these films and and television productions that are now halted. But um, with things like adjusted EBITDA and stuff like that, a lot of that stuff would have been capitalized, so it wouldn't have been recognized as expenses anyway. So they just only really see the drop in potential uh, profits as they've had to move movies. They've had to move the release of several movies back, like June 2, June Part 2, which is pretty devastating. Um, and then a few things early next year push back as well. Um, we don't know about Aquaman yet, but um, yeah, with that, we've got, but oh, that's why that's why they're different anyway. But um, yeah, with um, yeah, one other thing to sort of mention, I, there was I I did listen to um a Sir David Zaslav, the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, attended a um conference, I guess you'd call it, in uh, hosted by Goldman Sachs, I think it was Communicopia or something like that. Um, it was a really good, probably one of the best um, talks I've heard from. Him, actually, it wasn't just a talk; it was a like a Q and A, 
But I think like, his answers, he was really on form and he gave some really good color around things, talking about um, the impacts of these of the strikes and what have you. Um, just his vision for a lot of things. It was it was good, and they're talking quite a bit about um, putting live news, which is into Max. So CNN Max is going to be integrated in, so there'll be twenty four hour live news actually built into the to the app, which is going to be interesting. Um, and he talked a lot about there was lots of good stuff, and I, I think I'll there's another one coming out this week from uh, with. Um, the CFO, um, who will be attending another such event, um, I think on the fourteenth. So I will, uh, yeah, I'll probably have I'll probably put a few maybe a few comments from those in in next week's, and probably a little bit from this week's one as well that I and I mentioned. I think it was on the sixth of uh, September. The David Zaslav one, uh, but yeah, that was very interesting just to see. And he talked a bit about these figures and so on as well. Uh, it was very interesting to see the, um, just their their vision for things and how things have changed, how the business and yeah, and his vision for how things are going to move in the future. Uh, we've also got this week, um, this weekend as we were having. Uh, the Nun 2 released, which is one of the sort of conjuring universe films, which have historically done very well. Um, I wasn't a particularly big fan of the first Nun film, um, but um, but it was it did commercially well. And I think from what I've seen of the trailers, this one looks good. I'm actually going to see it this afternoon. So I will let you know next week if it's any good. But um, yeah, and we can have a look at the the figures. So that'll be uh, potentially some some good news next week. We'll just see how we we'll see how we get on. But yeah, I think that is pretty much everything for now. Uh, yeah. So stop sharing my screen. Yeah, I will catch you all next week for another update.